Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randalls. You'll find great deals on grilling favorites and more, and everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randalls, proudly serving Texas families since 1966. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to do one last off-season preview, and it's a little bit funny because the team I, I chose a while ago was the New York Knicks, and I'm thrilled to have on Chris Herring of the Wall Street Journal. And it got a lot more interesting because in the time between when we scheduled it and when we're actually, we actually did it, the Derrick Rose trade happened. So we start out there, but then we talk about the Knicks, their vision for the future, Carmelo Anthony, of course, they're free agents, and for those of you who like timestamps, those will be in the description of this on Blog Talk Radio and hopefully on whatever podcast player you use. So, conversation runs about an hour ten. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. No, no problem at all. I appreciate you inviting me. I think that what happened between when we discussed doing this and actually recording this is a great example of why the Knicks are so much fun, which is that their offseason was always fascinating, but... In the intervening time, they made a trade, which I don't know if it made it more interesting, but it certainly made it different. Yeah, I, I mean, they the the weird thing, and I know people pointed this out to me on Twitter and you know, and emailing me and whatnot. The pe- people that I speak to in the front office, who are very reliable, some of whom are very high up, you know, they'd made really clear that they weren't planning to go after a big name point guard, you know, and I guess maybe. I could have asked my questions more specifically and said, are we talking free agency? Is there a chance you might lure someone in a, a trade? But when you really think about Phil himself, you know, we asked him in April, as recently as April, and said, what a year in March. And he said, you know, I don't believe in tying a whole lot of money to the, the point guard position. I don't think it's necessary in this offense. And <laughs> like you said, we look up now and, and stuff changes so quickly with him. To some extent, maybe that's not that big a surprise. They've, they've cycled through more players than any team in the league the last seven or eight years by far. But the idea that you would go Lord Derek Rose, who kind of goes against the grain of a lot of the things that Phil's traditionally believed in in terms of his point guards and the people that have run the point guard position for him. And the fact that they are, you know, going to focus a lot of uh, the salary cap, at least for this coming year, at that position. Obviously, they, you know, it's not a signing, 
it's, it's a trade, and so he's just replacing money that came off the cap with the trade. But, yeah, stuff changes in a heartbeat with this team, and um, obviously this is a big shift for them. Yeah, it is a big shift, and I'm guessing part of the rationale might be that since Ro- they're not committing to Rose long-term, as you said, the money is for this year is pretty close to equal. So they maybe they're thinking about it as, oh, we weren't making that kind of a commitment. And when you look at the point guard market this year, the big issue is not necessarily the starting salary, it's the number of years. And yep. from the Knicks' perspective with that, I think they might have dodged a bullet with the sense of, you know, oh, I think a lot of these guys three and four years from now are going to be bad contracts or at least very shaky contracts. And it actually aligns with one of the things that I, I've thought about with the Knicks, which is that I think they'll be better a couple of years from now than they are right now. But doing that kind of a thing, and but also getting a star with it is a little bit different because that creates expectations in the fan base, especially if it goes well. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's the thing that, I think the, the critics of this trade, and I, I think I, I was, I'm somewhat cynical of the deal. I feel better about Robin Lopez than most people do. I think the value of his contract is better than maybe what you'll get with whoever you replace him with. But the idea of this being the same old Knicks, I don't, I don't necessarily buy that because, yeah, this isn't something that's going to hamstring them for years necessarily. Um, I do think it puts them in a position where one way or the other, you know, they're going to end up paying a lot of money for the point guard next year. What whether it's Rose again and on a new contract or whether it's, um, you know, someone that they're going to end up replacing him with and, and maybe not even as talented as Derek Rose. But um, this is just the one year. Uh, they'll be able to go back to the well next year regardless of what happens, you'd figure. But to me, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing with this deal, they, sh- they should be good in a couple of years, assuming that they, you know, they get some of these signings right over this weekend. But to me, what kind of, surprised me and again based on some of the conversations i had with people in the front office i was most surprised by the fact that it seemed like they were kind of at a point where they didn't care that much what carmelo was saying publicly about you know applying pressure to the front office to go after big names and and you know really connect on a big name and and change the dynamic of the the starting five a whole lot they basically said you know we're gonna just kind of gradually change the look of this team you know we, we feel like we can maybe go get a wing player or two and and really make this team a lot better by doing that, and we'll just focus on the guard situation next year. They obviously shifted that strategy really quickly by by pulling the trigger on the D Rose trade. Um, it's just the one year, so it you know figures it won't hurt them too badly. But I'm 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 just a little bit surprised because I, I think it also changes the timeline of what they're trying to do. That's the biggest thing to me. And Carmelo said that yesterday when we interviewed him that you know I'm convinced now that they want to go for it now and they're not focused solely on the future. And I, I think there's a a little bit of a way to be focused on both and not just one, but um, I didn't think they'd, they'd skew this far in the direction of now as opposed to later by getting Rose. And now, you know, if you're signing Noah, depending on how long a deal you're signing him to, that's going for now. That's a guy that's, I think, 32 years old or whatever he is, 31 years old. All of a sudden, you're not really spinning this in a way to really develop Porzingis as much, especially if you go out and get one more score and potentially make Porzingis a, a fourth option on offense. Yeah, there are a couple of, of big ramifications with it, and I really liked what you wrote what you wrote about Robin Lopez's impact and why I really liked him as a fit with this Knicks team is that he was good enough to play and good enough to be a part of the rotation, but was not so good or so expensive that he blocked Porzingis in that way. So basically, he could man the center spot as long as they wanted it, and that whenever they thought Porzingis was going to move there, which I feel is his eventual position, 
moving Robin Lopez, either trading him for something or even into cap space would have been fine, or just making him your, your backup would have been fine. And I, I really like that fit. And as you said, if it's Noah or somebody else of that ilk, not only are they probably going to get a worse contract, but it will be harder to frame it in that way that was actually pretty easy with Lopez. Yeah, I mean, I I just feel like that, to me, was their biggest asset. You have the people that, like Clockwork, are going to come and criticize you for your criticisms when you start making Robin Lopez the reason that you would hold up this deal. And, you know, I essentially said, look, I don't think there was a necessity to get rid of him right now. Uh, his contract will really only become more valuable for the next year or two just because of the fact that these salaries are going to escalate. And, you know, you don't want to hold on to him too long. I mean, I think he's 28 or 27 or whatever he is right now. And so he's not terribly young. But, you know, the, the role that he has on this team, especially the other thing, too, is that you look at players around the league, their values tend to, to go up if the team is winning. And so, you know, if the Knicks did manage to improve or go out and sign a free agent on their own this summer, you you could have maybe held out a little bit. And, you know, once teams swung and missed on some of the guys they were going after, they might have been more likely to to come to the Knicks and say, what do you need? What what could we do to get a center for that sort of value so that we don't have to pay out the butt to get, you know, someone that is really kind of a, a mainstream sort of player, not that special. Lopez, I mean, he's not a great player. No one would mistake it and say that he is. But he just does so many things and kind of protected Porzingis in a lot of ways. You know, there are games that stood out where he struggled. Uh, he, he's not the best at defending guys out on the perimeter. He's not the best at defending really skilled centers offensively. I remember he really struggled with Vucevic last year. But even when he struggled with those guys, there was kind of a thought and a feeling, at least with Derek Fisher, and sometimes Porzingis would agree to this too, that he just wasn't really ready to guard bigger fives in the league. So I don't think you're going to need Lopez. You wouldn't have needed Lopez for the life of his contract. I think Porzingis will be prepared to play that position before too much time passes. But, you know, I just it, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit that you're going to go out and maybe spend more per year on a center now than you were just paying Lopez when that was one of the things they actually got right last year. Top two or three team at defending the rim last season, a top 10 defense defense when those two were on the court together easily the best screener on the team his offense had really come around I, I looked up he was essentially a top five or top six post-up player in the league among guys that got a lot of touches in the post last year but over the last two months of the season and he was really nowhere to be found the first couple months of the season he just got way more comfortable in their offense along with Jaron Grant showed the most progression and improvement from the first half of the season than the second half and so it's just to me, if you're still going to run elements of the triangle and you're, now you're going to have to teach those to new people, um, I just think it's it's kind of defeats the purpose a little bit if you're going to throw away the continuity that you have every year. They keep changing the roster every year, and it just kind of makes it more difficult to really build anything cohesive. Yeah, and you brought up Grant, and he was another part of one of the best things that happened last summer, which was trading Tim Hardaway Jr. for a low first-round pick. And then, I mean, I didn't think Grant was the perfect guy to take at that spot, but, I mean, at least you got a first-round pick for Hardaway and got a guy who can be a contributor. And let's say even if he's a weak asset, you know, that's an asset that you don't have anymore, and the Knicks, of course, didn't have their own pick. What did you see from Grant? that last year in terms of like where where you think he'll be let's say two years from now well I mean what I saw with him that was intriguing I mean he, he obviously really struggled too and the same thing with Lopez you wouldn't make the mistake in calling him a star a future star maybe he's a starter at some point for some team but you know when I looked at him to me I, I saw him for a while as a victim 
of the system that they were in. And I think a couple guys were like that. I think Lopez was really the only guy who, who clearly played better uh, when they were totally inside the system and just kind of running the offense the way that they wanted to do it. Grant struggled with that. I mean, I think he was a guy that spent – I think he, he might have even been at Notre Dame for five years, but he was there the whole time, you know, through his senior year and was used to, for a while, a 35-second shot clock, a 30-second shot clock eventually. And it took him a while to really adjust to speeding up a little bit and having to make quicker decisions. He was used to being able to just kind of take his time in college in terms of finding who he wanted to pass the ball to. He was able to break guys down off the dribble with all the spacing that he had at Notre Dame, and that just wasn't the case uh, with the Knicks. And so he would he was really deliberate, and you saw how long he would take to kind of set the offense. And I think Derek Fisher kind of lost patience when Grant's jump shot wasn't good enough to stay on the floor. And then with Rambis, Rambis lost patience when he would make a turnover. Even if he was playing pretty well, you know, he might have one turnover or sometimes two and a half, and then that would normally be the end of Jaron Grant for that game. It wasn't until really, essentially, they would scrap the offense at certain points in the game, and then Grant would come in and just, you know, he would just be doing gangbusters pretty much. And um, the last, I think the last two or three games of the season, he essentially had either career highs or close to career highs in scoring each game. You know, he was distributing the ball pretty well. And it, it was really clear that he should have been playing way more to begin with. You know, Carmelo kind of alluded to that by saying, you know, me, Jose, and, and Robin all feel like we should be playing a little bit less to give the other guys more playing time. And I kind of felt like it was a very clear sign that they wanted Grant to be playing. One, because they were probably tired of playing long minutes. Rambus refused to really sit guys toward the end of the season, even once they're out of the playoffs, for sure. But, um, you know, I think Grant had also, you know, had been there long enough to deserve a shot. And once he started playing, he, he you know, he looked statistically was much, much better and I said this, and a couple of people got irritated by this. It's not to say they're the same player, but Grant's second-half splits looked a lot like Rose's second-half splits. You know, for all the talk of Rose's improvement, once he got to the second half of the season and his vision was totally fine, uh, Grant's numbers looked almost the same, and, and Grant's numbers improved a lot. He basically doubled his three-point percentage during the second half of the season. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I just think he deserved more of a shot, and I, I think it's, at some point he could easily be a starter, and it's really easy to think that, with Hornacek's system, he could have probably done a better job in a more wide-open offense than he did with the Trimal. And I think with him, Grant's best ability to me at this point is running a pick-and-roll, and, roll. and yep. the Knicks have a really good pick-and-roll, pick-and-pop guy eventually in Porzingis, and giving them a chance to really develop some chemistry would have been a useful data point at the bare minimum, you know, just to know if those two guys can work together and, you know, they're not going to, you know, it's not going to set the league on fire at this point in their careers, but just to know that, and it felt weird to me to get, kind of give up on him in that sense before you really knew that, and that goes into something that I think will be a much better development under Hornacek than it was last year, is just that Porzingis is a very special individual player. He's so good at coming off screens, he, he can be a really dangerous pick-and-pop guy, and it it felt to me like the offense that the Knicks ran last year just wasn't really built around that idea, and that's that's okay. You know, when a guy is a young rookie, you don't spend that summer saying, okay, how are we going to use this dude? I, I understand why they didn't do that, but I think Hornacek, by getting the job and by, I'm sure, watching a fair amount of the Knicks, will be able to hone that a little bit more than happened last year. I would hope so. I mean, he, he came in, he, he's definitely said all the right things with regards to Porzingis. 
the idea. I mean, I, I asked him specifically, how do you plan to coach this guy? What do you see as maybe being his biggest strengths and where you can maybe utilize him differently? The first thing he said was high pick and roll. And I tweeted that out. And basically people were like saying, thank God. And, and the responses to it, because while they did use Porzingis in that way, it was neutralized a lot of time because you're using them with with Jose Calderon who really didn't get to the basket very much at all and, and so there really wasn't much of a threat of him getting all the way to the rim and really opening up Porzingis as much as, as he could that said Grant that was one of the areas where you really did get the impression for a while that Grant and Porzingis could have eventually been a really devastating pair just because you know it's kind of both of their strengths Porzingis being a pick and pop guy obviously could roll to the basket as well and then Grant you know, his ability to get to the basket was good enough to where it could leave Porzingis open for jumpers. So Hornacek has, he just has a different mindset in terms of how to, to run the offense. And to some extent, I you know, I feel a little bit bad for Fisher just because I think he probably did have some ideas with that. He did want to run the offense with more screens. I think the Knicks ended up setting the fewest uh, ball screens in the league. It was either them or the Warriors last year. But I think Fisher wanted to do that, and I just kind of think after a while, I, it, it seemed like Phil had other issues with, with Fisher in terms of the way he utilized his coaching staff, the way that lack of day-to-day communication between he and, and Phil seemed to bother him. And really, it seemed as if uh, Fisher had the green light to do things differently when they were winning, but then when they started losing, Phil kind of, Phil and Rambis both kind of suggested that the the lack of triangle concepts after a while or at certain points in games started to kind of rub Phil the wrong way. And so to me, it was kind of unfair that he didn't have that latitude and now Hornacek does. I asked Phil about that dynamic and he said, well, Hornacek has coached practices before, so he knows what he's doing. Whereas, you know, Fisher came in never having coached. And so it, it is interesting to me that he'll have that latitude, but I think it was really obvious that they needed to be running more screens and, be doing more to help open up Porzingis and, and Melo. Melo has been one of the most efficient pick-and-roll players for years now. Um, there's a pick-and-roll ball handler, and there's a guy rolling into the basket. So I, I know fans kind of dream of the idea of seeing Melo and Porzingis do that together, and now they've got Rose as well, so you've got a lot of options there. Yeah, they definitely do. And something you brought up and, and is a really big question for this Knicks team as presently constructed is that Rose at, at in his career has used – pick and rolls mostly as a, a vessel for himself to score you know he, he's a, a very talented driver of course and he doesn't pass a whole lot out of that and when you have a guy as good as Porzingis you probably want somebody who's more who can be a passer and even a guy like Rose who can do both is okay but Rose will have to do something a little bit different than he has in his career and that's in no way to say that he is incapable of it it's just going to be an adjustment yeah, yeah. We I, I touched on that in the in the story I wrote on the analysis on the trade. I, I mean, he he's not, and he it was him and Westbrook. It was all you know, maybe three four years ago, maybe all five years since he's won the MVP. But you know, he was kind of the face of this changing look of today's point guard versus what we've seen in the past. He's very ball dominant. Um, he obviously can make incredible passes, but he's generally looking to score, and and you know he'll make the occasional great pass as well and can find guys open, but he, the biggest criticism of the last few years, you know, Thibodeau and, and then Hoiberg were all saying he needs to drive the ball more. It wasn't that he wasn't doing that. It was just kind of that he uh, wasn't able to finish. And then on top of that, his he had tunnel vision to some extent. He didn't pass the ball very much, um, had one of the lowest pass percentages of any point guard in the league last year in terms of when he was uh, driving to the basket. And so that's something that, again, when you factor in what, 
Rose will bring to the table on the surface of everything, you know, if they can add a couple shooters to their lineup and to their rotation, you think, oh, wow, this is great for them because now it gives them a drive and kick combination depending on who's on the floor with. Melo is a great spot-up shooter. If you can get him those sorts of looks, Porzingis is a good option if you can get him those sorts of looks. And then, you know, you figure Lance Thomas and other guys might be there as well. But he's not he's not someone that is normally looking to kick the ball out once he's driven to the basket. And so that is kind of an interesting dynamic. And the pick and roll is the same sort of thing. You know, he's had good moments with Pau Gasol, and, and Tosh Gibson can kind of knock down that mid-range jumper as well. But you, you just kind of hope that within all this and within, within Rose's skill set that Porzingis doesn't get too lost in, in all this. And, of course, it's not entirely the Knicks' decision, but one of what I thought originally before they made this trade was kind of like the looming specter on this season was what to do with Carmelo. Because the difference with him and almost any other player who's, you know, good but maybe could be better somewhere else is that he has a no-trade clause, so he can stay as long as he wants. Do you have a feel at this point for kind of where that's going for the next year or two? I mean, I, I would say all bets are off if they have another losing season uh, because this can play one of two ways. When I wrote my initial story off the Rose trade, I said, this is going to be music to Carmelo's ears because he's wanted another star to play with. And technically, depending on how you view the trade, you could say Rose is technically in his prime. I think we all know that's probably not the case based on the fact that he's a, a different you know, he's a different case. He's had a lot of injuries. He's had three knee surgeries. He had, you know, the orbital bone fracture last year to start the, the preseason. So clearly, I mean, he's, to some extent, I think most people would argue that he's damaged goods unless they've really figured out a way to just totally rehab him back to what he was. And I don't think there's a way to do that at this point. But it cuts one of two ways. One, Mello probably views himself as being in this completely now. And, you know, we, we heard him kind of waffle back and forth on the idea of waiving his no-trade clause to find a better situation and a team that's more ready to win right now. And yesterday he sounded like he'd completely come off that, basically saying that I'm, I'm more confident now that the front office wants to win now as opposed to later. And so to him, that's a commitment that to him, you know, on kind of the fact that his window is closing to say, look, we understand that we, we need to make an effort to try to turn this around for you before you're out of here and not just focus totally on KP. So there's that side of it. And it makes you think that he's totally committed. The flip side of it, though, is that if they they make this move for Rose, whether he's injured next year, and especially if they go get Noah as well, and both of them are injured, or if uh, you know they get Rose and you know maybe they had Noah, and both of those guys just have horrible seasons, and it's basically for a one year commitment for each guy, or maybe two years for for Noah, that still would probably give Melo questions as as about where they are and about whether he can win with this front office. You know, um, it, you know they invested in this summer and kind of redirected some of the resources they had by trading Lopez and Grant. But if you can't win with this group, maybe Carmelo starts to feel, you know, I need to leave. They, they've tried at this point. They did make an effort, and they did do as I asked to try to go out and get some real talent. But maybe they just don't really have what it takes to put this team around me correctly or the right way before my contract is up. And so, you know, it, it's one of those things that seems to change by the year, and it seems to get more drastic every year. Um, Melo made the playoffs for the first 10 years of his career and now has missed it for three straight years. He's the second player in NBA history to ever do that um, after AC Green, so he's really the first star to ever do that. But, you know, I, I think if he goes four years without making the playoffs, particularly after they've gotten a player like Derrick Rose on the roster and you figure they'll go out and get one other name, whether it's Noah or somebody else, I do think that would probably take a toll on his psyche. And, you know, it's hard to tell whether he'd ask out at that point. But, um, you know, you figure 
he would have given it a really good shot again with this team and kind of trusted them again. And if it falls through, it's, it's feasible to think that he might want out. Yeah, I've always considered that if he ever waived his no-trade, it would be more of a summer thing. But depending on how this goes, in some ways, a best-case scenario for both sides, if it doesn't work, would be to move him at the deadline, because what that would allow a team to do is really plan around it and give him potentially, because presumably he would go to a playoff team, give him a chance to really try out that team and see how it goes into that summer. But it also, I think it's hard for the Knicks to be at the point where he's ready to to cut bait at that point. And the other potentially important thing here is that by waiting as long as this has gone now, he is actually at the point now, after despite making as much money as he has, that his he he got a trade kicker as a part of the deal, which is kind of amazing when you have a no trade clause. What and what that means is basically that as the max is, has rise has risen past what he had, he actually could make more money with a trade now beyond all the endorsements and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think that's even close to the biggest factor for him. But it could be, let's say, a like you kind of think of it as a sweetener, if he makes the decision to leave, that he could get a little bit more money. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, like you said, I don't get the impression that that's an important factor to him. Somebody asked me yesterday, because I tweeted something to the effect of, you know, looking at Melo, uh, he, he made a, a comment yesterday that I thought was very interesting. He essentially said, you know, I, I don't think I can be basically LeBron's situation I don't think I can really compare myself to where he's at because he's had all this time off, or he hasn't had any time off, and I've had all this time off. You know, he's played in six straight finals, and basically when you consider everything with that, it's fully understandable why he wouldn't play in the Olympics, whereas with me, this is a legacy thing for me. You know, like he was basically saying if I can't win at the highest level in the NBA, I at least want to do it on an international stage because it's something that I can kind of stake my my name on, and, you know, he'd be the first – He's going to be the first um, U.S. Olympian to go four times in basketball. And so that's meaningful to him. So I understand why he's doing that. But he's at a point now where that really matters to him. And I think one of the other things that really matters to him when you think about it, uh, being in New York, you know, I I think he left Denver. He's someone that very much wants to be liked. And so when he left Denver, he got to feel firsthand kind of what it was like to, I don't know if be hated, but not liked by the fan base as he kind of forced his way out of there. And now with New York, I mean, he forced a trade there, and he even said when he re- when he signed um, to stay there in, two years ago that that was one of the things that factored for him, factored into his decision-making, is that I don't want to leave before, you know, we've really tried to fix this thing because I forced my way here, and I just would feel wrong leaving before we really get the job done. And so I think he feels somewhat of a responsibility to try to stay, I don't think he wants to be hated by fans and, you know, vilified for the fact that he would be leaving another situation, um, one that he kind of asked his way into. And, you know, I, I think that actually is very important to him. Uh, should it matter more than winning a ring? Probably not, um, especially when you think about the way that people are talked about and the difference and the distinction that people make between winning a ring and not having one. But I, I definitely think that that matters to him, and I think it probably matters more to him than than a trade kicker that would net him several more million dollars. I agree with you. And also, the idea of the no trade makes him more interesting conceptually because I think it would have to be close to a perfect situation for him to for him to really let that go considering he has so much on the plate. There's so many positives in New York, whether you think about the family element or all the other things, the comfort level. 
So that gives him a lot of power because basically what he can say then is, okay, you know, like maybe at some point I'll be willing to leave, but I'm not just going to, you know, be, be going wherever I want. So that allows him to, you know, maybe it's maybe it's a, a bigger, a biggish market that has a little bit of a better team or something like that. And, you know, that's why guys fight for no trade clauses is because then they get control over their own destiny. Yeah. I mean, I again, when you look back on it, it's kind of hard to believe that he, he ended up getting that. You know, I, I guess the Knicks were probably in a situation. They should have been in a situation where if he walked, that was okay. Right. Um, but I, you know, I understand the PR side of it. That you're not looking to lose a star kind of in a high profile fashion like that. The funny thing is that most of us looking back on that summer viewed, um, Carmelo kind of as the biggest star on that market. And we didn't think LeBron was going to change teams. Most of us figured it was more of a formality to figure out how Cleveland, or I'm sorry, how Miami, could go get a fourth star with Bosch and Wade and, and LeBron. And then all of a sudden, LeBron, there were the reports out saying that LeBron had no intention whatsoever of taking less than the max. And we we're like, okay, maybe this is a little different than what we were thinking. And so LeBron's decision to go to Cleveland kind of overshadowed everything for good reason. But before that, Carmelo was kind of the, the marquee name to a lot of people, or at least the one that people thought had the greatest likelihood of changing teams. He acknowledged later that he essentially had said in his mind and told his agent, let's make the Chicago thing happen, and then essentially backed out of that. Uh, he never got too far down the road with that, but essentially said, you know, I, I changed my mind and that it was too much for him to leave New York. So, again, it, it's crazy to think that he got the, the no-trade clause, but if he was really back and forth on that process and kind of undecided at certain points, I guess I understand, you know, why the Knicks did it and why they kind of acquiesced to that. But, yeah, it is crazy to think that, you have him in a situation where you can't trade him even if you want to, especially at a time, like we were saying with Robin Lopez, that the value of his contract really now doesn't look terrible because you're you're talking about a, a market where guys are going to be making a lot more money than he is. Yeah, like Har- Harrison Barnes is going to be making close to the money that Carmelo is making right now. So oh, it's, my it's goodness. Not, it's not ridiculous in terms of that. And my standpoint was I, I always had a pretty hard line with what I thought the Knicks should do with Melo. And for me, it was, you know, you can give him a lot of money or you can give him a no trade, but not both. And I think that was the mistake. You know, if they had offered him, let's say, Chicago-level money, so that was a step down from what he got because they just couldn't clear the space. If you want to offer him Chicago-style money and the no trade, sure, not a problem. Or you give him a max. And, you, and I would honestly, I would have probably given him the choice and said, hey, whichever one of these you want, you're happy to have it. And it's the double that's a little bit of a problem, but you're right that for most teams, having him on, on this contract is it wouldn't be that big a deal. It's not it's not, you know, twenty four million, it's expensive, but it's not prohibitive anymore like it like it was before. But he was good enough that it was justifiable. And that gets into the idea that I'm intrigued by, which is interesting because I've never lived in New York, of kind of if you want to call it Nick's exceptionalism, which is that I I believe that cap space for the Knicks is more valuable than almost any other team, and that's the reason why the situation is a little bit different there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I've been of the opinion several times, and it, it's a fair question that some of my followers have raised that I, I think they look at me now and they say, like, well, what star would you be okay with the Knicks signing? Because every time we bring someone up, you kind of, you know, you essentially say that you're not comfortable with that or that you wouldn't be willing to shell out the money or the years, and so I've been getting that question a lot on Noah now. You know, a lot of people, I think the big difference between me and a lot of the people that follow me is that, you know, first of all, a lot of people just kind of recognize names. They may not watch some of the players as closely as I do or get a chance to see them up close as often as I do, but the big question now to me, I, I love Melo. I, I think 
He's a great player. I'd love to see him win a ring. I have my doubts about whether that will happen with the Knicks. But I'm more of the opinion now that they should have been kind of more concerned with figuring out how to pivot to the future with Porzingis as kind of their centerpiece. And I think to some extent, most of the front office had done that. And that's why I was saying the Rose thing is a little bit of a surprise. I don't think it's a total shift away from that, but it definitely, as, as Mello said, it's kind of more of a commitment to right now as opposed to the future. And it, it might, you know, it, it may put Porzingis in a spot where he's not really the second option. Depending on who they get, he may not even be the third option come this season. So, you know, I look at it as a situation where I don't think you have to swing for the fences every single time. I think you can hit solid doubles. And that's kind of what I thought the Robin Lopez deal was, is at least to get them to a place. I thought it was really important by this summer or next summer to get to a place where you're close to, you know, a 500 team or slightly better. Because when you, right now, when you look at the teams that Kevin Durant has confirmed, at least that his folks have kind of confirmed they're going to meet with, the one thing those teams all have in common right now, they're all competitive teams. I think the, the least competitive of those teams is either Miami or Boston, depending on how you look at it. But every one of those teams has either won a title relatively recently or they all had 500 records were in the playoffs. And so when the Knicks are on the outside looking in, the only real rationale you have especially when you have Rose and Carmelo and Porzingis on the same roster, the only rationale you can really look at and say that this is why we didn't get a meeting or this is why we didn't get serious consideration from them is that we weren't a winning team. I mean, you, you, I, I think for years the Knicks, the Lakers, a lot of these teams have kind of banked on just the name value and the name recognition of their franchises. And clearly for someone like Durant, and I think with LeBron to some extent, I think he's kind of turned into this. These guys – seem to care more about winning than pretty much anything else. And so you can't really bank on that sort of thing as much, especially now when, you know, the Knicks used to be notorious for kind of overpaying guys to, to get them to come to town. You know, I don't think that that matters here because everybody's got the money to spend, and, and I think everyone knows that. And it's part of the reason that, you know, people look at someone like Greg Monroe, and this time last year people are saying, how did the Knicks not get Monroe when they wanted him to play here? First of all, one, it's pretty clear at this point that they probably dodged the bullet there. Two, um, these players clearly care more about, a lot of them care more about winning than they do about money because the money is kind of relative at this point. It's all pretty much the same. It's big money everywhere. Yeah, it is big money everywhere. And I think that the the possibility that is a little bit different with the Knicks and Lakers, the Lakers this year, the Knicks eventually, is the idea of getting two guys in the same class. Like, I think that's the exception to being good now, is the idea of, like, oh, if the two of us were together, we'd be fine. That is kind of an analog to what Miami did, though that is, of course, very different, because they also had the pedigree. And I think that's a possibility, but you can't realistically do that when you have Melo on the books for the price he is. It could be possible next summer, depending on how things go. Thankfully, that's a big benefit of Porzingis being so cheap is that, you know, they could actually add two guys on top of everything else. But it's still hard to do, and you need two guys that probably already have a pre-existing relationship, don't have conflict in terms of position or what they want to do with the ball in their hands or all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, that's a really hard thing to find. But I think that ties in with the overall philosophy for me of why I find this Knicks offseason so interesting is, like you, I look towards the future and the idea of solid doubles and all that, and part of the reason why... I lean that direction as well, is that I don't think there are many home runs on this market. There aren't. I mean, I, I think, you know, that's part of the reason that I think they kind of went for Rose now, and part of what Phil cited, he basically, I mean, they, they, they looked at the landscape, and I think they kind of saw it as Conley being, you know, the, the big prize at point guard, and then 
from there you've essentially got Rondo and then maybe Jeremy Lin or something like that. Um, there aren't a ton of point guard options, and Phil even said that's part of the reason that we went ahead and pulled the trigger on this trade is that we didn't really see an opportunity for, your, for a huge upgrade at that position. So we went ahead and we, you know, we traded our center, and we figured we could probably have more luck on the on the market with the center, and we just go ahead and trade for the point guard we want. And, and in doing that, they also get someone who's a little bit younger than Mike Conley is, granted, with, with more injury history. And, you know, Durant, I don't think Durant was ever that realistic of a possibility for the Knicks anyway. If they get a meeting, that's great. Um, I still think that they would probably be the least likely team for him to go to, yeah. you know, after those first six, you know, even if it's just kind of by nature of the fact that he would be agreeing to a meeting with them after he agreed to the, the ones with the first six teams. So, and again, they're the lone losing team that he's even seemingly considering talking to. And so um, I don't see that as realistic. And, and you know, LeBron's not leaving. There, there are some good players on the market. You've got Horford. You've got some other guys. You've got Dwight. Noah obviously has been a good player before and has just kind of hit a nasty run of injuries and hasn't been that productive while he's tried to play through them. So it, it seems like to me the Knicks, honestly, when, when you think about Noah, the fact they already got Rose, um, it, it seems as if maybe they're looking to get bargains on some of these guys, you know, it's not often you could trade for an MVP by not having to give up even a first-round pick by just giving up one starter, one backup, and another guy that probably wouldn't have started for you this year anyway. So I get why they did that. Uh, Noah, you know, kind of discounting the fact that there was a report out that said that Noah would get the max from someone. I don't, I don't see anyone offering him a max for more than a year, and even that seems like a bit of a stretch with his injury history. But um, assuming that, that that there may not be a whole lot of truth to the idea he's going to get a max from someone, I'm sure the Knicks are hoping to get him at a cheaper price than maybe what he otherwise would go at because he's played so few games the last couple years. And so if that's the route they take and they're kind of banking on the fact that these guys can get healthy, the fact that they can kind of placate Melo by saying, look, we went out and got some names for you and some veterans that can help us win now, I understand what they're doing. You know, it is a summer where they probably weren't going to have a whole lot of luck with the really high-end names on this market anyway. And so maybe maybe you trade for one and then you get another one who is a big name but is someone that you can get for maybe a little bit cheaper than what you otherwise would because of the circumstances surrounding that player. Yeah, I mean, if you can get a guy on a single-year contract for me, it's not really going to be a problem because you can, you can always handle that if need be. And some of those guys could even, if, if let's say your season falls apart, you could even maybe trade some of them for a small asset just to save a little bit of face and, you know, get something for it. But I, I think what's what's hard with the Knicks and what I'm a little bit concerned about with the idea of going for names is that oftentimes, whether they deserve it or not, names end up getting money. And that could be short-term money or it could be years. And my refrain for almost every team, but it's uh, it's stronger actually for the Knicks than maybe any other franchise at this specific moment is the concept of, of no bad contracts. because And that's not bad contracts for this year. It's like, let's say next summer, if we're sitting here on June 28th of 2017, you don't want to have anybody that you signed this year to be like, oh, we have to like give up an asset to move that guy if we have to. And there is a possibility of that with a couple of different players. I think about Dwight. While I like Dwight Howard, the possibility that he could degrade like that. Noah's, you know, if Noah's only a two-year contract, that's probably okay. Yeah. And, and so and so that's a big test. And I think that the Knicks absolutely unequivocally passed that test last summer. Lopez, to me, looks like a, a, a net positive contract right now. Kyle O'Quinn, even though he barely played, 
he's bargain basement guy. And, you know, that kind of a thing, you know, Aflalo and Derek Williams both opted out. And so, right. you know, so you don't have to deal with that. So if they can do that again, obviously you would want to get more people who can be, you know, like a, more of a long-term asset. But right. if, if you can hit that at the minimum, it's a very successful offseason. And it sounds weird, and like again, I think that's a benefit of living, living a country away from the Knicks is that I can see it that way, and I don't right. have to have to get it. But that is the mentality that I think will lead them successfully, because when teams feel the pressure to do that, that's when you start to get into like what New Orleans did last summer, where they're like, oh, we have to get better, we have to retain the guys that we did, and they pay Omar Oshik for she, four years. Yeah, that contract was like, awful. Like those yeah. sorts of things, like that, or even Ajinsa. Like Ajinsa's not a bad player, but they gave him you know five million for I think four years, and so like now. It's a small thing, but that takes away money from from the books. And if the Knicks can avoid that pitfall, they'll be in a good spot. I agree with you. You know, I, I thought, and you know, somebody kind of took aim at me on Twitter. I can't remember. It was just some random follower, but said like, "Why are you so negative all the time about the Knicks?" I'm like, "You must not have followed me last summer when I couldn't really stop singing." Phil's praises, you know, I, I thought they did a very good job. And I mean, it, it kind of tells you about how dreadful a lot of their other summers have been in the sense that they, they con- there was always like one really bad contract that they would pick up somehow, whether it's Bargnani, be a trade or, or, or something else, you know, someone that they'd signed that just didn't really seem to be a smart acquisition. But last summer, I thought was the closest they got to really normalizing themselves, you know, not trading their draft pick even though there was probably a lot of temptation to do that. Going out and, and basically, you know, saying, okay, we don't get Monroe, who I thought, you know, was going to be a worse signing for them. We, we get Lopez, who was just a solid player. And, and, again, this was someone that no one ever thought it was a total home run signing. I mean, he wasn't a top-of-the-market guy. I think that's generally the only way you hit home runs with those sorts of signs, either that you find a, a hidden gem that ends up being like a steal, an absolute steal for you, or that you get one of the top-of-the-market guys who everybody is going for. And, um, you know, Lopez was neither of those, but I thought he played solidly. And, you know, he didn't disrupt anything. His contract was not going to be a huge hindrance to you going forward. And so I thought that, you know, that's an example of what I thought to be at least a single, but probably more likely a solid double and something that you could kind of parlay into an asset. And that was my only criticism with the Rose trade. I, I think picking up Rose is great. My only critique of that was that I thought, you probably could have gotten a little bit more for that asset that you traded to get him, especially since you traded Grant along with him. And, you know, the, one of the better critiques I saw of it, Jason Concepcion Network on Twitter said that, you know, Phil kind of undid his best two moves since, uh, you know, depending on how you feel about Porzingis, I think, you know, a lot of people say that if Okafor had still been there at number four, that the Knicks probably would have drafted him, you know, over Porzingis, and so whether Phil kind of lucked out with that, either way, I think he deserves credit for yeah, taking he, he made the pick. You get the credit yeah, if you make the he, pick. I, I think he absolutely deserves credit for that. But, you know, either way, uh, aside from that, aside from the draft pick, in terms of signings, trades, whatever you want to call it, the best two moves Phil has made so far were, you know, the signing of Lopez and then orchestrating a trade to get Grant with, you know, with someone that a lot of people did not view as that sexy of an asset in Tim Hardaway Jr., and so the fact that you kind of undid both of those things with one deal to bring in a player that at best you're going to get him for one year and then maybe need to re-sign him again for probably considerable money. And so that that was the critique, I think, that I had and a lot of people had. But it's not to say that the Rose thing can't work. I just think that, you know, there might have been ways to kind of attack this a different way. Um, and maybe you could have gotten a point guard for, for a little bit less than that. I mean, I also, the way I feel about it, a lot of people feel – 
not the star power, but just in terms of fit and kind of the three-point shooting that you'd want. I don't know. I, I think you might have been able to find a two-guard in free agency, or maybe even some of the restricted guys you look at, to kind of fit in with the defense a little bit better and some of the needs that you're going to have with Lopez now, not there. George Hill, I mean, I, I was kind of amazed that Utah was able to get George Hill, and I really like that fit for them. I mean, I know the Knicks need someone that can get to the basket on his own, but um, I don't know. I just kind of feel like there were other deals you could have made for someone that maybe wasn't as much of a risk in terms of health. But I, I totally understand why they did it. I understand why people are excited about it. It could absolutely work out. I don't mind Rose being on the roster. I just kind of felt like the the price, even though Robin Lopez does not sound like a steep price, and he's probably not a steep price, I just kind of felt like he might have been able to use his value a little bit better in another deal. Before we move on, I do want to talk about the the Knicks free agents. I, I realize that we've gone this far without asking you what I consider a basic question, which is, do you consider Porzingis a center long term? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, it's more a question of when than than if, I think, and um. You know, I, I didn't expect him to be their full-time guy this year, but I also didn't expect them to unload Lopez in a deal for Rose, you know, one year into a deal. And so, you know, maybe maybe by next summer that's something that he's realistically ready for. If not next summer, then you would hope the one after that. And that's why I think it's kind of, you know, I see people spitballing these ideas as to who the Knicks should really target, uh, Al Horford, Noah, you know, and, and varying degrees of how long the contract should be for in each of these circumstances in terms of what people think. But to me, I mean, it's one thing if you picture Horford maybe being a four um, or, or, you know, obviously having the ability to play the four and him being one of the top three or four free agents on this market this summer, that if you can get him, great. Maybe you go ahead and do that. I just feel like it's very clear at this point that their biggest need to me, you need a guy that can shoot and Horford can do that. But I think more than anything, you need a wing defender that makes it life a little bit less hectic on Porzingis and whoever else you're going to have at the five because they just don't really have a lot of perimeter defense right now. Melo is capable of doing it, but doesn't do it all the time. Rose is not really known for his defense at all. And as a two-guard, you know, you, you figure you want someone there that can defend, and you would hope shoot because of the fact that you've got Hornacek now as your coach. And so I, I think Porzingis being your five also, you know, makes things a lot easier because you you don't have to really – sit and figure out like who you're going to have protect the rim. You have a guy that has a 7-6 wingspan. It just doesn't make logical sense to me to, to plug a guy in there with a contract for the next four or five years when you have a guy, I would hope two years from now, that can do that, that has a 7-6 wingspan, that is seven foot three, that is like an ideal small ball five. I, I think you're, you're more than capable of doing that if you're Porzingis over time. He already played, I think, a quarter or a third of his minutes at the five anyway as a rookie when he had no weight on him at all. And you figure that, you know, he's had the whole summer to work on that now, and then he'll have another summer in front of him next year. Um, I absolutely think he's a long-term five. Yeah, and the big reason for me is also that he is so special offensively at the five that I think it's worth it either way. Because what playing him at the five means to me is that the other team, you have to have a four that another team can't put their five on. So, like, theoretically, I'm not saying the, the Knicks would ever get him, but, like, if you put Porzingis next to Ed Davis, and you're like, oh, Porzingis is the five, Ed Davis is the four, well... The other team's going to put their four on Porzingis. So <laughs> that does, that's a nominal yeah. thing. It's kind of like the whole Paul George playing power forward thing. It's like, if the guy is good enough, you're going to do that. But if Porzingis is being defended by centers, if that's even possible, he will annihilate them because they, he operates at a very different point and it, it completely changes the way every team has to think about defense and the difference between him and, let's say, Myers Leonard, who is, has the same range, is that Porzingis is more versatile offensively and his defensive ceiling is much higher. So, like, yeah, you're probably not going to have an awesome defense if Porzingis is your center. You know, like, that—that that is a possibility. But you could have a top-five offense 
And if you have a top five offense and let's say like a, you know, like the 10th to 15th defense during that time, that's enough. And I think that you can you can go around that. It's it's really exciting to think about what they could be. And so so you go in that direction, but you I would say you want to do something where you have another center, you know, a defense first center who's capable of playing twenty to twenty five minutes a game. So you slide Porzingis over. Like none of this has to be a binding thing. You know, like Porzingis can be primarily a center and then still dance over. And I think that's the end game that is perfect. I wish O'Quinn was a little bit better or that they trusted him more so he could be more of that, but they can do that. But anyway, that's enough on Porzingis. I guess the best place to start for free agency, maybe the most compelling, is the two guys who just opted out. So Fallow and Derek Williams, they only have non-bird rights on both of those guys. They both turned down, you know, eh, contracts that are probably about what their maybe average value will be moving forward. Do you expect either of them to be back? Not a whole lot. I mean, I, I could kind of see Williams coming back, but I think that would have been more likely under Rambus than it would be now under Hornacek. I think Aflalo just wants out, period. I think he felt a little bamboozled by what happened last year. Um, you know, was probably told, I mean, if I had to guess, was probably told, look, you can be the number two scoring option on this team. And essentially that's what it looked like, is that he essentially felt as if he became the number one option on nights where Carmelo was out. And then normally there was one or two games where that worked really well, but then a lot of the other ones were just disastrous. He just kind of looked like he was trying to be Kobe. And, you know, he, he likes he likes to post up, and he's got a nice fadeaway, um, but there were nights where it became excessive. And he's just not anywhere close to what – I mean, he, he never was a, a really, really good defender. I think there were times where he was slightly above average. But last year he was just flat out bad. I mean, he struggles to get through screens. You know, I, I wrote several stories during the season kind of laying out the fact that he had some of the most wide-ranging splits in the league between, you know, basically – Anytime Aflalo was neutral or a plus, they basically won. And at one point, I think when I wrote the story, they were like 17 and 1 when he was neutral or a plus and plus minus. Then any night where he was a negative, they were like 1 and 17 at the same time. So they basically lived and died based on what he was doing, which tells you how important the team's secondary scoring was. And the fact that he wasn't a good defender and that you had him in a backcourt with Jose Calderon as well, it just didn't really seem to be a good fit. And I, I think he also became disillusioned by what ended up happening when they ended up pulling him out of the starting lineup and Rambis basically went with Sasha Vujicic, which was a slap in the face because Vujicic had had the lowest field goal percentage in the league for the first three, three and a half months. And so you kind of understood it from both sides, but Aflalo felt like they weren't straight with him about that demotion. And he basically said no one ever came to him and told him that he was going to be brought off the bench full time towards the end of the season. So he basically said in, in as many words that he was going to opt out if for no other reason because he felt like he could still be a starter with another team. And so, you know, that is what that is. I think the Knicks are happy to move on from that, not only just to have the space, but because I think they saw fit-wise he's not a good enough defender to really hold up the rest of the defense uh, with the guys that they're going to have starting now. I think Williams could potentially be a better fit. I mean, he got much better with rebounding towards the end of the season. I think he um, he, he got he, – he had – moments where he really looked like he he actually kind of played well next to certain guys. The biggest problem for him, um, I think he's a good guy in terms of pace as well. He's not a guy that is looking for a ton of ISOs. He gets to the basket. He, he creates a lot of fouls. The problem with him, I think, is he doesn't shoot the three well enough. I mean, he, he was another guy that had really crazy splits. He shot really, really well on the road from three, or at least a lot better than he did at home, which I thought was a really weird split and probably one of the few guys to do that. But he, he just doesn't really shoot the three ball well enough. 
for, for what Hornacek wants to do, at least with the way he, he generally likes to space the floor. And again, with the lineup that you're going to have, if, if you're going to play Porzingis at the five, boy, how, how much better does it make your offense when you have five guys that can shoot, or at least four, considering that Rose is going to be your point guard, four guys that can shoot, you know, two through five being your, your best shooters. Um, if Rose is out there and Rose just being a distributor to get those guys open and play those guys open, it doesn't work as well if you've got uh, Derek Williams kind of at the three in a lineup like that and maybe Melo at the four or flip those guys, however you want to do it. It doesn't work quite as well when you've got two or three guys in your lineup that can't shoot and then you're playing Porzingis at the five. It kind of defeats the purpose a little bit and doesn't give him as much spacing as you'd otherwise have. Yeah, it's a great point. As much as it pains me to say, considering I went to college with him and, and really like him on a personal level, I think what, I like a, him too. what a flawless destiny is, is that his reputation superseded his, his actual impact for a long time. And I think what's <laughs> going to happen is that he's just going to bounce around the league with the teams that still think he was what he never was. Yeah, and, it was it was rough watching him with Portland because you kind of felt like that could actually be a good fit for him. Yeah, you know, like, team if, if, he, if he was and, what people yeah. thought he was, that would have been a nice fit because he can, exactly. you know, he can defend and he can hit open shots, allegedly, and do all that stuff, but he's just not that guy, and he honestly probably never really was. And it's amazing how often teams have given up an asset or something for him, and then he's disappointed there. Like, I was talking about it with, I can't remember who it was with, it might have been with, with a Denver writer, about how there's this really weird thing with certain guys where, in the tra- this is also true with Rudy Gay, that the trades they're involved in the team that moves them is almost always ends up being the team that got the better side of the deal. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad or anything like that. It just means that they're being overvalued by the team that acquires them. Exactly. And, and that, that's the only problem here is that I, I just kind of feel like, and I mean, to some extent, it's the, it's the same question with Rose. And it's, I, I don't even think the Knicks made a, a really bad trade here with Rose. It's just, that's the thing is that at some point you'd love to see the Knicks get in on the, on the early side of somebody. And that, that, you know, me and Jared Dubin talk about this all the time. You always kind of want to find the next Kent Bazemore as opposed to having to trade for Kent Bazemore or having to pay Kent Bazemore and phrase It's much easier said than done. And granted, the Knicks have done that a, a number of times before where, you know, they, they basically get Cole Aldrich, you know, and, and then he ends up being a, a solid rotation player for contender. And the Knicks actually wanted to keep him last summer, by the way. But, you know, him, Ariza. obviously, Jeremy Lin was a good example of that. Ariza was an example of that. But the problem is that, you know, a lot of times they're in such short deals or in such quick deals. But then they hit free agency and they're unrestricted. And then another team comes in. Or even if they're restricted with Lin, another team comes in and kind of is offering them way more than what the Knicks are paying. Or the Knicks kind of get an itchy trigger finger, and then they pull the trigger on a big trade to go get a blockbuster name, whether or not he's really worth that anymore. And, um, you know, that's kind of the bigger problem is that they don't really buy low on these guys. They end up, I mean, on some level they did that with Rose here, but it's just a question of, you know, it's kind of a diminished buy low because he's someone that by no means is he an MVP player anymore. And you're kind of more just hoping that he can kind of rekindle what, you know, the perception of him was before. The same with the Flalo uh, last summer. Yeah, it, it is interesting how that happens with the Knicks, that they have been able to identify them. One of the, the counterexamples, that actually, and I know me and a lot of other people were not really that keen on the idea of draft or not drafting, but signing Derek Williams. I mean, that actually, for them, not only did it not really hurt them that much, I mean, it's someone that a lot of fans probably wouldn't mind seeing back on the roster. Again, I don't think he really fits what Hornacek wants to do all that well, especially because he's really not much of a defender. You know, he was an example of someone that was kind of more of a buy-low guy for them, uh, someone yeah. that I think, you know, 
he, he had a decent enough season to where you could ask him to come back. Had played with bad teams in the past, and so maybe you feel like if we get him in a more stable situation, and, and obviously the Knicks are not all that stable because they've already kind of changed. You know, the rebuild has all of a sudden become something where they want to win now. They fired a, a coach a year and a half in who seemed to be making some level of progress. And, and, and it's the Knicks. They cycle through players quicker than really anybody. But, you know, that was part of what they kind of put their trust in with regards to the Derrick Williams move is that this is someone who really hasn't had a fair shake just yet, um, who has played with a couple teams that have been really unstable. Maybe we can kind of help him figure it out. And so I don't mind moves for those sorts of moves for them, honestly. Um, you know, as long as you're trying to sprinkle in some moves like that and trying to find guys and identify guys that – maybe you could find for slightly less than what their value might be in another situation. And before they really strike it rich and demand a really big contract, those are the sorts of moves they should be making all day long. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. So the Knicks have seven unrestricted free agents, and there's one of the restricted guys we'll talk about after. Okay. To me, the only guy that I think they, they have a real chance of, of making a, you know, keeping and making a real impact with is, is Lance Thomas, who I actually really like. Sure. Yeah, no, he's... Someone that Phil mentioned, now he's asked about it by name, but he also mentioned it by name saying that we expect to have him back. And, and he's, I mean, he's an example of someone that I know, I didn't, I don't know if I'd say write him off, but I know when they made the trade for, uh, they traded JR and Shumper to Cleveland, they basically got a bunch of throw-ins, you know, to kind of make um, the money match, you know, in, in terms of just throw-ins for that deal, basically, and um, from Cleveland. And I remember saying to myself, like, they they actually immediately waived all the guys they got as a result of that trade. And then they re-signed a couple of them. I think they re-signed Lance, and then they re-signed one other person, whether it was Alex Kirk or someone like that. I can't remember who it was. But when they did that, I remember saying to myself, like, you know, why even bother to give this guy a roster spot? Why not just go get someone else and try? You know, you already waived him. You didn't think he was that great. He was probably their most consistent guy. He was definitely their most consistent guy off the bench. You could make the argument, I would probably say it was Lopez, but you could make the argument he's their most consistent player the whole season. He had started to come down a little bit by the second half when he started running into some injury problems. He missed most of the second half of the year uh, with injuries. And to be honest with you, to some extent, that might have kind of been a blessing in disguise for them just because he's the kind of player that could help a lot of teams. I mean, Cleveland probably still has some work to do. They just won a title, but they could probably still firm up their roster and spots. He's the kind of player that would fit well there. Uh, he would fit well with a lot of teams. He doesn't have the prettiest, most fluid game, but he added the three-point shot to his repertoire last year. As a guy that didn't make, I don't even think took a single three in college, and now all of a sudden, you know, and also had never had a guaranteed contract until last year, played himself into a great situation, and, and I'm really happy for him. But he's someone that the Knicks definitely want to keep, you know, once free agency rolls around, and I'm sure they'll probably try to find a way to do that. Because without him, you really don't have a consistent wing defender other than maybe Justin Holiday. But, um, you know, aside from him, you really don't have anybody who you can really count on consistently on the wing defensively. And he's just so versatile. I mean, he guarded point guards at times last year. He guarded James Harden at times last year. Um, you know, could guard small ball fours last year. He, he does all that. Um, he gets to the rim. You know, it's not pretty, but he gets to the rim. He can shoot. Um He's just a hard-nosed guy. He's clearly Derek Fisher's favorite player on last year's roster. And so you would hope that they find a way to bring him back, but um, but we'll definitely see what happens with that. Yeah, it'll definitely depend. And the other, like, so the restricted guy that I think they feel pretty comfortable that they're going to bring back is Langston Galloway. I'm not completely sure what he is moving forward, but it certainly seems like it'll be worth keeping him. 
Yeah, I mean, he's someone that when I talked to folks in the front office earlier that they were kind of saying it was 50-50, and, I, you know, you got the impression that at one point, depending on how comfortable they were feeling in terms of the market and who all they could really make a play for in terms of these bigger names, that if they had to, you know, that, that maybe you, you go ahead and you renounce them. And I was curious to kind of see what would happen with that, that you don't extend them an offer um, before you hit free agency. And so I, I think it seems more likely now that they're going to keep them, particularly now after they go out and get Rose. You know, Phil already talked about the fact that they're going to need a more reliable backup at that position. They traded Grant away, and so you don't have that there. They only have one guard under roster, really, right now, under contract. I mean, depending on what you consider Holiday to be. And that's Rose. And so you're going to need people. Theoretically, you'd want people that know a little bit about how they structured their offense last year, even if Hornacek is going to make tweaks to it. He's a pretty good defender, Galloway. You know, his numbers, both years that he's been with the Knicks so far, his numbers have really fallen off in kind of the second half of his tenure for both of those years. And so that's a little bit of a concern is that maybe he plateaus uh, or, you know, he's a little bit streaky. And like you said, we don't really know what he is just yet. You know, he may just kind of be a decent role player. Um, and, and maybe we've already kind of seen what he is. He was a four-year college guy. And so there may not be a whole, whole lot of upside left. But again, you're going to need guards on this team that can defend based on the other guys you've got on this team. And so, you know, bringing him back is not the worst idea. And, you know, you figure he may not go for big, big money. And so they're going to need to kind of fill out the roster with guys like that. And you figure it makes more sense to, to do that with people that you already have a relationship with and that you already have a comfort level with in terms of knowing their personality, but also them knowing the system and kind of the priorities you've got on both sides of the ball. And also just assuming he's going to play primarily the one, the backup point guard market is going to be rough. You know, it's going to, you Very may, rough. maybe the Knicks can get a one year, you know, get a one year guy and pay and pay him that way just because the Knicks kind of always can. But outside of that, especially when it's it's th- those players will probably not be young. You know, again, it's you're, you're not getting a guy on the front side. You're not going to find the next, you know, the next Bazemore, the next Delvadova. You're going to find be just getting like Jared Jack or something on a cheap deal just to, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you know, th- there are worse things than that. You know, you could there, you could overpay somebody for more years is definitely worse than a one year kind of just vet guy. But exactly. Galway's Galway's interesting. He does have a little bit of upside and. Yeah, and so and he ties in kind of with the idea of doing that, and also I sincerely hope, but you know I'm openly skeptical, that <laughs> the Knicks could use their kind of the idea of summer league and their immense cap space to really do a couple of real flyers on guys, and just hopefully you find one or two players that maybe you know maybe they become nothing, but maybe you know you give them like kind of like what the Sixers did. I call it the Hinky Special of you know basically giving a guy the three a bunch or four of year deals, three or four year deals with non guarantees yeah. and just saying, okay, you get to play with the Knicks, and also the difference with them is they might be getting some playing time, depending on what position they play. And so basically saying, hey, you're going to do that. But the problem is that would have been a much better play two, three years ago than it is now just because there's so much money out there that there aren't going to be many players who are worth it who are going to accept that. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, you know, the Knicks, they they had an opportunity, and I, I, I was pretty surprised. I mean, they're one of the few teams that didn't make a single pick in this draft. And, um... For a while, you, you figure maybe they're they're going to buy a pick here in the second round. They always do that if they don't trade. You know, the other thing, Phil, in the three years he's been with the Knicks now, uh, this being the third, going into the third calendar year, he's made now two draft eve trades. You know, the Tyson Chandler trade I think happened on the eve of the draft a couple years ago, and then obviously the Derrick Rose trade happened on the eve of actually happened. I think it actually might have even happened on the day of the draft. I can't remember exactly when that was. No, it happened on the eve of the draft, and then they announced it, and Phil did a Q&A the, the day of the draft. You know, he's done this a couple times now, 
and found ways to get into the draft normally and, you know, at least held on to the picks they've had. I was pretty surprised this year that they didn't go ahead and do that. They, they seem to have a very clear prototype for what they wanted. Uh, they wanted wing guys. They wanted guys that had ball handling experience. They were looking at Michael Gabinaje. You know, they were looking at Wayne Selden from Kansas, they, all these wing players. And I just thought it was really interesting that they didn't end up getting into the draft. You know, you, you saw reports. I can't remember what it was. Golden State paid a certain amount of money to be able to move up and, and get into the second round and, and buy a draft pick. And I think they did it for, like, a little bit over $2 million. Right. And so th- there, there were reports, basically, that the amounts of money that teams were asking for those picks were higher than in previous years. And so even if that's the case, whatever. You know, the Knicks have countless amounts of money to spend. I was pretty surprised that that they didn't go ahead and make a move to do that. And it would have been way more appealing, and you actually have some intrigue surrounding your summer league if you do that. Instead, you've got like a Marshall Plumley again, when we talk about upside, a guy that's been in school forever, it seems like. You know, and, and other guys, it just doesn't seem like they have a whole lot of guys that they would realistically bring up, especially now Jaron Grant's not on that team either. So you've got a bunch of guys that are all kind of just like fringe and probably unlikely to make the, the roster. It feels like they're going to be using this $30 million or so that they've got in free agency, it seems like they're going to be splitting that a lot of ways in free agency because I don't see a whole lot of guys in the summer league roster who seemingly would, would make the, the team itself. And if, you know, I agree with you, they should have used summer league for that. But to, to do that and to just have a bunch of undrafted guys that you're going to basically have there, um, I think they have Tokido, you know, who played with Philly last year in summer league. But aside from that, they really don't have that many guys. They really seem to be end of roster guys on, on, the, on the summer league team. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully it ends up working out. Is there anything else you think is worthy of discussion here? Uh, not really. I mean, I'm just curious to see now, you know, it, it, this summer will tell us a lot, who, who they end up yeah. going after. And the le- I think the length of the deals is more important because like you and me both said, Noah is a perfectly fine signing. I, I'm even okay with the risk that you're taking to, to pick him up even after these injuries he's had. I just kind of wonder, you know, how, how long are they willing to go with him? Because some other teams... There, believe it or not, there may be teams out there that are more desperate to add a name than the Knicks are. And so, you know, if, if there are teams willing to do that, how long are they willing to go with these contracts for how much money versus the Knicks? You know, and um, depending on how long they're willing to go, it may tell you a lot about just how much of a now team they view themselves as as opposed to a future team. You know, I, I didn't see them trending in this direction just even a couple weeks ago. I still thought they were kind of had their eyes on the prize in terms of just developing Porzingis and finding the right running mates for him. And it, it does seem like that shifted a little bit. You can't say it shifted entirely because Rose is just a one-year contract. But, um, you know, if they do turn around and sign Noah for three years or something like that, four years, it, it tells you everything you need to know about the fact that, that the team has totally shifted priorities and is now kind of looking at not really long-term for Porzingis, but long-term in, tra- in terms of trying to, make as many runs as they can with Carmelo in tow right now. Yeah, that that brings up a point that I think is going to be really massive a couple of days from now, which is that the period between when we hear a player and a team agreed and when we find out the terms is going to be absolutely bonkers because there is so <laughs> much variability now. So, like, let's say Noah and the Knicks agree. That will right. come out probably a couple hours before we hear how much per year and how many years. And right. that time is going to be crazy because also that's when everybody else is going to be negotiating. And so I think we'll see some that we'll, we'll look at and they'll be, we'll hear the agreement and we'll be like, oh, that ended up working out way better than we thought. And there'll be some that'll be worse. And of course, every team and every fan base wants to be on one side of that and not the other. But the right. Knicks, I would argue, would have maybe the highest highest volatility with that because oh, while, 
we, you know, while there is this clear vision of what they could do, and I've written about it numerous times, there is always the possibility with the same individual name, like let's say Dwight Howard, like if you heard the Knicks went with Dwight Howard, honestly, there are probably about five different contract structures I could throw out there and all of them would be reasonably possible. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, even Dwight, I mean, I don't see him, given the complaints he just had in Houston about not touching the ball for possessions at a time, I think he would be a bad fit personally. I mean, I, I think he could work. He's still a, he's still a very useful player. He's still a pretty good defender. I mean, he's not the Dwight of old, but he's still a good player. But I could just see that being a really bad fit in terms of, you know, if, if they're signing him for three, four years, which presumably is what he would probably want at this point. You know, one last big contract. He's not someone who's performing at LeBron or Durant-type levels where you, you realistically sign him to a one-and-one. One. You know, you probably don't want to do that. You'd probably rather lock him in. And Dwight would probably prefer to be locked in in case he has any injury troubles. But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If you look up and... You know, you see the Knicks agree to terms with Noah. That's totally fine. But then if you look up three hours later and you see it's like for three and 80 something, eh, that's not what you want. I mean, and and I I don't think that will happen. But, you know, there's a total difference between that and maybe, you know, something closer to what Robin Lopez agreed to, where it's, you know, maybe three years at 13, 14, 15 a year. I could even make an argument that that's okay. Uh, Maybe not three years I wouldn't want to do that. But if you're doing that for two years and you're giving him 15 a year, I understand that sort of deal. It's just when you start going really high and into multiple years with certain guys, especially at that center position, if it's not someone like Horford who's very flexible and versatile, I just wouldn't quite understand the point of that when you have Porzingis. And it just kind of, it just would make me feel like they're closing the walls in of Porzingis a little bit in terms of allowing him to finally get totally comfortable at being the five two years from now. And also, depending on who you put in that five spot, if it's like a Dwight or someone like that who needs the ball to be happy or productive somehow, and you've already got Rose and Carmelo on the other side of the lineup, I just don't quite understand what you're asking of Porzingis anymore in terms of his growth. I mean, I think you might actually be stunning his growth a little bit by doing that. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, and it will be very exciting to see. Thank you so much for taking the time. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Chris Herring for taking the time. You can read him at the Wall Street Journal, and you can also follow him on Twitter at HerringWSJ. That's H-E-R-R-I-N-G-W-S-J. Love to have him on. The Knicks are a legitimately big offseason me just because the major markets do loom large, and I think that they've been an under-impactful portion of the free agency during this collective bargaining agreement. I've talked about it with Nate Duncan on Dunked On a few times, but we haven't really seen a major market team put it together. And the system with basically exiling extensions, which were such a big part of the NBA before that for veterans, really opened the door for those teams, the New York and LA teams, to make an impact. And because the Clippers already had their guys, and the Nets misspent their money, the Lakers are the Lakers, and the Knicks have been the Knicks, it hasn't really happened. And this would be one of the few off-seasons where you know, that could make an impact, and then, depending on what happens in the CBA, that could also be next year. But we'll have to, of course, see on that as it comes. And this will be the last podcast of Real Jam Radio before the off-season really kicks in July 1st. And as those of you who know my work know, that is a big thing for me. I'm very excited to see where it turns out. And there is more uncertainty this year than in other years. I mean, there I, I think we all have thoughts on where things might go, but there are a lot of there's a lot of volatility especially you can think about somebody like Al Horford you know if the Hawks offer the fifth year who decides that he'd be better off somewhere else that's a good example of it and of course I will be writing and podcasting throughout it both here and on Dunked On and all my 
writing outlets, The Athletic, Sporting News, and of course Real GM. And it will be fun to track all of that and to see where it goes. I'll also be in Vegas for Summer League for a few days and then, then come back and we'll see. We'll see what I do after that. But it will definitely be fun. If you haven't listened to it yet, I w- would highly recommend you take the time to, before July 1st to listen to as much of the mock-off season that we did on Dunked On as you can. That was Nate Duncan serving as the player agent, and then Dan Feldman, Kevin Pelton, and I split up the 30 teams and negotiated. And it, it is remarkable how much space is out there and just how many players, too. And I, th- I think that the timing of this year could be different. It's hard to know. But that, that is my expectation, just because the sheer volume of individuals and money will make it difficult to come to something quickly because teams will want to touch base with a lot of different guys before they make a decision, and some players will want to do the same. Some will have a narrower group, and, and we'll see that. So I will be excited to see who signs on July 1st and who plays it out for at least a couple more games. For those of you who want to get feedback, Twitter's probably the best way. My handle is at Daniel Rue. D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email NBA at gmail.com. I always promise to read everything that I can and respond to as much as I can, but I promise to read everything. So that part of it you, you get, but I, I can't promise a response, and I definitely can't promise a rapid response. I have an inbox that has way too much stuff in it right now, and I feel a little bit bad about that, but I'm busy, so it's okay. So you can do that. Also, it's much appreciated if you... Download every episode. Hopefully you listen to as much as you can, but downloads are the metric that are important. So for this and any other podcast you like, and also give it a rating, give it a review on iTunes, things like that, because that is how people find the show. I mean, I've been doing it for a little, I think it's a little under two years now and might even be under three. And I think that it it is really amazing to have the opportunity to have this grow and have people find it and dunked on it certainly helped that. So Thank you to those of you who are listening. Take care and make it a great day. Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randalls. You'll find great deals on grilling favorites and more. Everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randalls, proudly serving Texas families since 1966. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? 